This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. A few weeks ago, I felt impressed by God as we get started in some of our messages, uh, not just to share some information with you, but to pray for other churches. We live in a county of 65,000 people. In our county, there are about 165 churches, best guess and estimate, or that 15,000 people attend church regularly each Sunday. Okay, And so the, the problem with our church situation in Stanley County is that if everybody on a given Sunday decided that they wanted to go to church, there are not enough churches. And so we want to pray for the other churches. And we want to pray that God moves in other churches and that God uses other leaders. And so uh, we're going to take some moments as we kind of open some services for a while to pray for other churches. Today I want to pray uh, for uh, a very good friend of mine, somebody who's made a significant um, influence or a difference in my life, has been a very positive influence. His name is Bill Baldwin. He pastors a church called Harvest Church. Harvest Church is a portable church. They meet at Albemarle Middle School. Uh, they're formerly um, in a permanent location, uh, but I want to take a moment and pray for them. Uh, the reason uh, that, that Pastor Bill is so very, very uh, dear to my heart is he gave the invitation that I responded to when I gave my life to Jesus. I mean, how, how more important can somebody be in your life than that, right? There are some of you that are here today that uh, that's my relationship to you. Right? I gave the invitation that you responded to. There's just kind of a special connection that's created in that. I'm very thankful to him. Um, uh, he is not only that, but he, he's my best friend's dad. And so throughout the years, as I entered into ministry, he's given me advice and been there. Uh, he has, in different moments, said things that literally altered the trajectory of my life and my ministry. I'm very thankful for him. And I'm very thankful for Harvest and what they're doing. They are loving our city well. They are doing portable church in a school very, very well. They love Albemarle Middle School very well. They breathe life into that school. I'm so thankful for them and the leadership that's there. So I just want to take a moment and pray. Can we do that as a church? Let's do that. God, thank you for Pastor Bill and for Harvest and what they're doing. God, thank you for uh, this bold step of leaving a permanent facility and moving into a portable environment and loving a school that needs love like Albemarle Middle School and doing it with such grace and got such integrity and making such a difference like they're doing. God, thank you for a church that's willing to even reach out into places that most churches won't go, like Amherst and and, and different locations around our county. God, thank you for uh, the wisdom and influence that, that Pastor Bill has had in my life. I pray, God, for him right now in this season of his life. I pray, pray for uh, a renewed sense of purpose. God, I pray today that, that, that God, that even in his life, that his ministry, God, that you would give him new vision and, and new wine in, in this season. And God, I pray for over his family with him and Karen and their children. Just pray protection and guidance and wisdom and all of that. In the name of Jesus, we say amen. Right, amen. Now, if you're like me, uh, you, you probably grew up 
uh, going to a youth group and uh, maybe maybe I was a child of the the 90s I, I grew up uh, I went to high school and graduated uh, in the late 90s and so uh, if you were a child in the 90s and you declared your life to Jesus there there were ways that we let the world know that we were a Christian now, now, the Bible actually has some ways it's designed for us to do that. Uh, some of those are that we have spiritual conversations with our friends, that we actually talk to them about our relationship with God, right? One of the ways that we're supposed to let the world know that we have uh, a relationship with Jesus is through baptism, where we choose to respond into the same direction that Jesus took when he was baptized. And it's this beautiful picture of being buried to our old life and being raised to a new life in Jesus. But in the late 90s, there was probably no greater way to let the world know that you were a Christian than to wear a Christian t-shirt, all right? It was how we did it. We bypassed all those other things, and we just wore Christian t-shirts, and they were the most hideous, ugly things that were ever created, right? In the, in the late 90s, it was really one of those things that, that, that we, had, we had some of the, the worst sayings that were ever printed on t-shirts, like turn or burn, right? Like that is just like the worst representation of the gospel ever and then we stole literally copyright infringement stole every other logo out there and turned it into some kind of representation of jesus right, i thought it'd be funny to look at some christian t-shirts that are available today for purchase on amazon all right look at this one here's number one hallowed be thy gains right that's a shirt for you to wear at the gym right there right <laughs> here's the next one here's the next one uh, want to talk about Jesus? And underneath it, you can't see this, but it says, let us pray. <laughs> um, what's really funny is that we had a parent who had a kid that was wearing this shirt in the first service. <laughs> and they're like, I died inside when you mentioned this. All right, number two, look at this. Relish sweet Jesus. I would really like this shirt better if it said relish sweet baby Jesus, but that's just a whole different message. And then if you're going to go there, you might as well go this this one. Uh, catch up with Jesus. All right. Look at this next one. YOLO, which means you only live once. JK, just kidding. Be right back. Jesus. All right. If you, if you wear this shirt, we might ask you to turn it inside out. I'm just saying up front. Okay. A little embarrassing. All right, look at this one. This is my favorite. Jesus facts. All right, serving size, one life. Servings per life, my cup runneth over. <laughs> Daily percent of value, peace, 100%. Love, 100%. Best before, never expires, right? These are Christian teachers. And really, this is when I first gave my life to Jesus. This is how we shared our faith. With I, only, I, I gave my life to Jesus at the very end of my high school career and only had one Christian t-shirt. I wore it to school one time, and I was sent home for wearing it. <laughs> because on the top of it, it had in big, bold letters, hell. On the bottom, it had flames. And it had two guys that were on an escalator going down to hell. And one guy looked at the other one and said, don't worry, my church voted three to one that this place doesn't even exist. <laughs> like, Whoa, this is a pretty serious t-shirt. And it had the words hell, and it got me sent home for that, <laughs> which is a total different issue, right? So um, today, I'm going to talk about a very difficult topic, and that's the topic of hell. As a matter of fact, um, many of you have heard messages and sermons on this before. And a lot of times the pastors seemed angry. Uh, unfortunately, there have probably been even a few times that the pastors seemed excited. 
I just want you to know today, I've never wept or cried um, over a message more than I have this one, to be honest. Um, I feel like it is a very serious uh, topic, and it's one that the Bible approaches with great sincerity. As a matter of fact, that, that image that was on my t-shirt is the image that many of us have had of hell, of flames. And what's very interesting is as the Bible talks about our relationship with God, it describes it in terms of fire. And then when it describes hell, it uses the terminology of fire. It's very interesting to me that this paradox exists between the way that our relationship with God is and then what hell is described to be. So I thought I would open with just kind of pointing out the difference. First in your notes today is that following God will ignite a fire in us, but it will satisfy our soul. It will satisfy our soul. The, the fire that is ignited in us will satisfy us. It's so interesting that the first imagery in the Bible of God as a fire comes when Moses sees a bush that is on fire and he goes over to look at it and he makes this observation. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. And in that fire, the voice of God spoke to Moses. And if you know what happens, the trajectory of the world changes based on what God said through that burning bush, that the bush itself, the structure of what was living and created, the good part was not being consumed. But then... In Hebrews 12, the Bible says this, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Remember that worship is a response to God. It's our choosing to say, God, I will follow you. And this picture of God being a consuming fire does not mean that God destroys who we are. What happens is that our relationship with God consumes the things that are not of God, leaving the real, authentic self behind. But the problem with the other kind of fire is this, that when we choose to follow our own will, it ignites a fire that cannot be satisfied. Choosing to follow our own will ignites a fire that cannot be satisfied. It will always want more and more and more. It will never be satisfied. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is giving us imagery of what hell is like. And in Mark chapter 9, he uses this terminology the worms that eat them, those that are in hell, this is really difficult to process, do not die. And pay attention to this. The fire is not quenched. The fire is not quenched. The desire for more will continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. 
when we choose our will and reject the work of God. This is probably most evident in the story that Jesus tells in Luke 16. It's a story called The Rich Man and Lazarus. And if you pay attention to this, it's the only time that Jesus tells a parable where one of the characters in the parable is given a proper name. Which is an intentional move by Jesus. And it's a very odd placement. Let's look at this. Look how it happens. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man that was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. He's giving the imagery of Lazarus having uh, leprosy. And leprosy being in its advanced stages, understand that his audience was Jewish. They would have considered a leper, somebody who was infected with this disease, untouchable. They often considered them having been under judgment from God for having this. They received it because of something that they did that was wrong or something that their family did. This is God judging them. So these people are untouchable. And he is covered with sores as Lazarus lay there, longing for scraps from the rich man's table. The dogs would have come and lick his open sores. Now think about this with me. The only time in Scripture Jesus gives a character in one of his parables a proper name, and he gives it to the guy who has leprosy. It's literally mind-blowing. Because the person in the story who the guys in context hearing it would have thought would have gotten the proper name would have been the rich man. Because to be a rich man, to be clothed in fine linen of purple, which is how it's described in Scripture, means often that he was probably Jewish and he was probably living what was considered to be a righteous life. So it continu- Jesus continues. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. And the rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. Now, in this moment, I want to be clear. Okay, next week, I'm going to teach on heaven. I'm going to explain this verse a little bit more, but Jesus is being very intentional. The original language that's being used is used to describe heaven and hell. All right, so we've heard in other translations that the Lazarus is, trans, or is carried to uh, the Abraham's bosom. But really, Jesus is, in the original language, trying to differentiate that the, the rich man is going to hell and that Lazarus is going to heaven. It's very, very clear in the original language. So then he continues. There in torment, he, the rich man, saw Abraham in a far distance with Lazarus at his side. And the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus here to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. Now I want you to just stop and notice. He's in hell. He is in punishment. And yet, his attitude has not changed. He still believes that he can command Lazarus to do something. That he is better than Lazarus? That Lazarus should serve him? Do you notice this? That even in the midst of eternal judgment, his attitude and posture has not changed at all. So look how Abraham responds. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. 
So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. And no one can cross over to you from here. And no one can cross over to us from there. Abraham addresses the rich man. Pay attention to this. As son. As son. Now that's important. Because the word that's used in the original language means son, but it has a connotation that goes with it. It means son that is estranged. It's a sad word. It's not a word that would bring joy. It literally invokes sadness into this moment. Like you're loved, but you are lost. So he continues. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. And the rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent from their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Notice again that the rich man's nature, even after his interaction with Abraham, is not changing. He is still trying to command Lazarus as a servant. His view of his self versus Lazarus and his condition still postures himself in control. And notice this that he makes a very bold assertion. Send him to my brothers because they need a little bit more information. If they can just have a little bit more information, then they won't make the same decision that I made. Which, in many ways, he's actually posturing himself and saying, if I would have had a little bit more I wouldn't have made this decision. Do you see how choosing your own will is always going to leave you with a fire burning inside of you that cannot be quenched? Even in hell, he's saying, if I would have just had a little more, why can't you give my brothers more? It's all about more. So I want to talk to you about this tension in our lives of choosing either God's will or our will. And the first thing that I want you to notice today, it's in your notes, that our lives will naturally worship one supreme God. They will naturally worship one supreme God. Now notice that there is a small g on that because for many of us, The God that we worship is not the one true God. Our lives will naturally worship one supreme God. And for many of us, that's not Jesus. It's not God's will. For many of us, it's something else. So I want to ask you this question just to try to diagnose this and get you thinking about this as we move on in this message. What is the thing that you ultimately live for and defines who you are? That is your God. 
What is the thing that you're living for that is defining who you are? That is your God. What is speaking and you're responding? Where do you find your self-worth and your self-image? That is your God. Notice what Abraham said to the rich man. He said this, during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. Think about that statement for a moment. You wanted riches, you had riches. You wanted to be comfortable, you were comfortable. You wanted luxury, you had luxury. But you did not want God. You did not want God. Because had you wanted God, you could have had him. But you didn't want him. You had everything you wanted. But everything you wanted was temporary. And because you completely rejected the invitation of God to surrender your life to Him and follow His will, because of that, now you are living in the consequences of your decisions. This is why I love the way the French philosopher Sorin Kierkegaard answered the question, what is sin? See, Kierkegaard struggled with the definition that was constantly given of sin, that sin is breaking God's law. And he struggled with that because if you looked at the Pharisees, the Pharisees kept God's law. They did everything that God said to do. And so Kierkegaard developed this definition. Look at this. That sin is building our identity on anything other than Jesus. Sin is building our identity on anything other than Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were sinful, and Jesus made it very clear that they were sinful because their identity had become that they could get it right, that they were keeping the law. Their identity became their morality, not Jesus himself. And when we make anything other than God our identity, it is sinful. The problem is we can take good things, good things, and turn them into ultimate things. And I want you to understand this about when we do that, when we make a decision that takes something that is good and we turn it into an ultimate thing, it will create in that moment in that area of our life, a tension that will remain unresolved. It will ignite a fire that will never be quenched. See, we need to know this about hell. Number two in your notes today. Hell is the result of our complete rejection of God's invitation. The invitation to follow Him and to Obey him. We know that that is the invitation that Jesus has leveraged. Come follow me. Come follow me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father except through me. That's the invitation that we've all been given. And hell is the result of our rejection of God's invitation. And that rejection, if you're taking notes, I'd write this down. Our rejection of God's work is always tied to a connection to this world. Our rejection 
of God's invitation is almost always connected to a connection to this world. See, at times we deal with things that look a lot like addiction in our lives. I don't know if you've ever been through that, noticed that. But when we elevate good things to supreme things, it's as if they become an addiction in our lives. And, and I don't know if you've ever studied addiction, but addiction runs a certain level of pattern. And the first thing that happens in an addiction is what psychologists call disintegration. That the, the little bit that you used to have to take to, be, to get higher, to get your fix, now you have to take more, and then you have to take more, and then you have to take more, and then you have to take more, and all of a sudden, the, the switch flips, and now you have to have all of that just to feel normal, because when you're not on a substance, you feel horrible, and life feels like it's unbearable, and so all of a sudden, for life to be normal and typical, you have to. And life begins to disintegrate. And relationships begin to disintegrate. And intimacy begins to disintegrate because you are consumed with something. This happens in our lives. The next step is isolation. Because as those things become so important, and we begin to need more and more and more. What happens is that as it becomes ultimate and supreme, we push others out. We push God out. We push intimacy away. And what was important now becomes secondary. And we often end up in a stage of denial where someone would even lovingly point out where you are in life and you would say, no, that's not me. I'm not like that. Because you can't even see the problem. For many of us, there are things in our lives that have been good things that we have elevated to become ultimate things. And think about what Kierkegaard said in that fire that I mentioned earlier, that when we make our, our identity something other than Jesus, it becomes a fire inside of us, sinful, that can never be satisfied. And that fire will literally consume your life. It may start out with just, I would need a little bit more money. I just need a little bit more control. But those are Little matters, and they seem to be small and insignificant, but I love what C.S. Lewis said. Look at this. Christianity asserts that we are going to go on and live forever. And, if, and that must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things that would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live only 80 years or so, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to go on living forever. There are a great many things that are worth bothering about if I'm going to go on living forever. See, God is described in Scripture as a righteous judge, a good judge. I don't know if you've ever been in court and had to watch a a good judge go to work. A, a, a judge's job is simply to examine the evidence and make a ruling based on the decisions and behaviors of other people. And in the past, we've 
heard imagery and heard pictures of God choosing and throwing people into hell. As, as if like a loving God would pick us up and throw us in there. See, the problem is, is it's not God that throws us into hell. It's our decision. And God, as a righteous judge, judges whether we have rejected or received the invitation. Think about what the rich man is saying when he begs to send Lazarus back to his family. And Abraham responds with these words. They won't listen to Moses and the prophets. They won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Notice that we proclaim a message today of the verifiable fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That death was defeated and there are many who interact with the teachings of Jesus knowing that someone raised from the dead under the authority of those teachings and still say no. Nope. I'm going to do it my own way. See we realize as Christ followers, that when we choose Jesus, when we choose Jesus, that our lives are changed and that the presence of God fills our lives and that as we seek God and pray and worship, we can experience heaven on earth as the presence of God surrounds us and God changes and transforms our lives and we see the lost become found and the broken become whole. But I want you to realize this. That when we reject Jesus, you can live in hell today. You can live in hell today. That when we look at God and say, no, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to create my own identity. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to listen to you. We can live in hell. And there are some of you that are living in hell in your relationships, in your finances, and even inside in your own personal identity. Remember what Kierkegaard said. That sin is building our identity on anything other than God. So let me just ask you this question. What is your identity built on? What is your identity built on? Just to kind of get your brain pushed in that direction. Think about this as a, a secondary question. What am I responding to? What is it in my life right now that my knee bows to that when this comes about, I am responding and moving towards this thing? Let me give you a few options that are not good that literally lead to hell on earth? Is your identity being found today in fear, doubt, worry, or anxiety? Is your identity being found in the statement that God can't? There's no way that God could do that. I can't believe that. I can't trust that. I can't trust people. I can't trust God. I can't trust His Word. It's fear, worry, doubt, and anxiety. And every time that you have the opportunity to choose one of those, your knee bows to it and you respond to that. 
That's hell on earth. Maybe today, your identity is being built on shame. Maybe there is something in your past. And the truth is, is that it's ugly. And you don't want it to be who you're defined by today. And so because of that, you constantly struggle with burying it and pushing it away and hiding it from people. Or sometimes shame wears a totally different hat. And it becomes the definition of who we are today. I am that person. I am that mistake. I'm going to live that way from now on. Is your identity being formed through shame? Because that is hell on earth. Maybe today your identity is being formed through accomplishment, status, or possessions. That was a rich man, wasn't it? That it was what he had and what he possessed and his influence. The problem with that is that there's always more and you know that that's a problem because there was a time in your life that you thought, if I can just get to where you are right now, you thought, I'll be okay, I'll be satisfied, but now that you are where you are, you're saying, I would like more. So all you have to do is look over the past to realize that it's a fire that will never be quenched. It is hell on earth. Maybe today it's relationships. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife. Maybe it's a relationship with one of your parents, maybe even a friend, but there's a relationship that has started to form your identity outside of Jesus. And I can tell you this right now, that many of our husbands and wives, they make good spouses, but they make very bad gods. And so we need to realize that when we try to elevate what is a good thing to a supreme thing, all we're going to do is create hell in our relationship. Maybe it's pride. The most subtle but deadly decision that we make. Where we say, God, that's fine. I'm going to do things my way. God, I, I realize that you have a way, but, but I'm, I, I'm totally, I see it. And I know that Jesus was real, all of that, but no, God, you know what? I'm going to do relationships my own way. You know, God, God I'm going to do money my own way. God, I'm, I'm going to emotionally manage myself my own way. I'm not, I'm not going to do it your way, God. Maybe it's pride. There's no quicker way to live in hell on earth and being eaten up with pride. See, I think heaven begins with a statement that Jesus made in the garden. You remember the moments right before he's going to be crucified. He's going to go to the cross and bear our sins. Right? And on the cross, all of the wrath of God is going to be poured out on him. God's not angry at you. Jesus has already absorbed the wrath of God. But in the garden, Jesus is praying, and in his humanity, he knows what's coming. And in his frailty, he's asking God, is there another way we can do this? And finally, he comes to this conclusion. 
I want your will to be done, not mine. Heaven begins with that statement. When we say that statement, heaven begins in our lives. But hell starts when after many rejections, after breaking the heart of God over and over again, God steps back and looks at you and says, fine, your will be done. Which is why C.S. Lewis in his brilliance said that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. There are some of you today that for a great time in your life you've said no to God. No God, I'm not going to do it your way. And it has caused you to live hell on earth. And I believe today is a day that we get to say yes. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.